Attitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he moves next to these two metaphors to describe uh, what is the outworking of the Beatitudes. In other words, as uh, we are grown in Christ's likeness, these Beatitudes become manifest. What will that look like in the world around us? He says to his hearers that day, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so by his gracious power at work within us, according to the Spirit's strength, followers of Jesus will influence the world for its good and for the glory of God. There is to be a difference among Christians. There's a difference in the way we act, that we live our lives, and the way that the world lives. And this difference or otherness is described in the Beatitudes. We see it described in the fruit of the Spirit. We see it described in a number of places, what our lives are to look like. In other words, this isn't isolation within the church, but it implies our being in the world and not of it. It implies our being out, engaged in the world that we might bring salt to it or light to it to shine as lights in the darkness. The lives of believers will have an effect as a result of how we live in the context of being in the world. This means the kingdom isn't one of communes or cult-like behavior. We are to engage in the areas that the Lord has placed us through our jobs and our neighborhoods, among our friends and family members, wherever the Lord may lead us. He has called us to this. This purpose of our kingdom-oriented living is described through these metaphors of salt and light, two things that were as easily understandable, although in some different ways, in the days of Jesus as they are now. Everyone from the youngest to the oldest has witnessed salt and light, although we certainly take it for granted today in ways that the hearers of Jesus uh, in, in his day did not. In our day, salt and light are both readily available. However, for this audience, much more effort was required to get or use salt or light. For us, how many grocery stores will we pass on the way home from church? All of us will pass at least one, I'm sure. There's probably multiple ones there. And if we needed salt, it's not very expensive. In fact, we can not only buy salt, we can buy kosher salt, Himalayan pink salt, smoked salt, sea salt, uh, various forms of smoked salt. I mean, it's, it's an abundance for us. We have tons of... Uh, of, of options when it comes to that. Light, in the same way, comes as easily as the flick of a switch or the push of a button. Most of us right now have access to light through the, the flashlight app on our phones, anytime, anywhere we go. And we even now take that for granted that if the lights go out, we don't. You remember the days when the lights went out and you didn't even know where the candles were? Uh, you know, and you're like bumping into every, I mean, now we just pull that out anytime something happens and we can see. But for those in Jesus' audience, both required much more effort. Refined salt wasn't something that was, uh, and it's certainly not in the forms that we have it today. Uh, To get light, you had to have a lamp or some other means of fire, and then you had to think of all the ramifications of fire, particularly when you were inside and uh, children being around and so forth. Salt had more uses than just enhancing flavor. That's about the extent of what we use it for, although there are other uses in our day. But we have modern refrigeration. We don't need it in the same way they did to preserve food. But it was absolutely essential to keep food safe by using salt in the days of the New Testament. 
Both of these examples, as I mentioned, were readily available in every home. Even children would witness the use of both in their daily life. From the poorest to the richest, they would have uh, an eyewitness account of salt and light. So these metaphors were something that everyone could connect with, even though there are some similarities and differences uh, in our own day in terms of how we use them and how we acquire them. Uh, they, they were something that everyone could understand, at least what is being implied in the use of these metaphors. Yet the purpose of both of these is easily understandable. We still need, as different as things might have been back then, when the sun goes down, the lights come on. We still need, or maybe needs too strong of a word, but we still want salt the minute we taste something that needs salt. We don't ever think about salt otherwise until you taste something that's like, it needs something, you know, and it's usually salt. But both examples are used to demonstrate how we live out our faith, that it should shine, that it should enhance life, that it should serve as a preserving agent in this world. Both salt and light are demonstrated through our good works as we walk in faith, as we love and obey God, and as we love our neighbors as ourselves. So look now at verse 13, and we read there, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The first thing we note in this verse is that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, uh, be the salt. He says, you are the salt. He will imply in a few words that we can lose our saltiness Uh, but he calls us both salt and light. So the message that he is delivering is clearly for believers, those who have professed faith. Second, salt is others-oriented. It is for the earth. You are the salt of the earth. We understand from the scriptures that we were created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, who I formed and made. We confess this in our Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So as a result of our living to glorify God, one of the results is that it affects the world. Our lives should have an impact. They should uh, make uh, a difference in how, there should be a difference, not just in how we live, but it should have an impact. It will have an impact. In using salt as a metaphor, there are a number of implications that we could draw out. I've mentioned a couple already, both taste and preservation, but there are others. Um, uh, I'll just go through and mention, again, preservation used for, uh, you know, prevent decay. Something we we really don't ever think about anymore. None of us are probably salting our meat to prevent it from decay. There might be a few that do that. I have my guesses as to which one they were. Uh, and and it is, you can still buy this. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, but I would be too wary to ever try it. I would be the one that would miss the one spot and it would, you know, make me sick or something. But, you know, can you imagine, have you ever tasted pork without salt in it? You know, what would bacon be if it, do they even make unsalted bacon? And is there any purpose in eating unsalted bacon, you know? So, you know, preservation, something we take for granted was absolutely essential. It was, uh, it could be, I guess, life or death if you, if you got some meat that had, uh, but it cert- certainly would make it regretful if you did not salt the meat. I mentioned uh, that it's used to enhance flavor as well. Again, the minute we taste something that needs it, we know it. 
It needs something. It's usually salt or it often includes salt. But salt can also be used to enhance flavor. Uh, I don't do this, but um, my dad put salt on his watermelon, and he swears that, uh, see, I'm, I'm seeing the ones, okay, I, he's not the only one. But he swears it brings the sweetness out. And so he salt. well, he salts everything, but he salts. You know what he also does? He salts his coffee. Before he, before he brews it, he puts a shake of salt or more in, see, his coffee grounds. He swears it takes the bitterness out. But salt can do a number of things to transform our food. So keep that in mind as we consider this in a spiritual sense. Salt was also used to purify in the sacrificial act. You may not remember this, but there are a number of places in the Old Testament that, that speak to this, that salt was to be used in sacrifices. Leviticus 2.13, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. What was the purpose? It was for purification. So there's preservation, there's, there's flavor, there's taste enhancement, but there's also purification here. And that covenantal language is used to remind us that even our sacrifices, in the case of the Old Testament, even the sacrifices as humans had to have this purification component. In other words, even the best we could bring, the spotless, the, 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 the unblemished animal that had to be selected, uh, even the best that we could do, it still had to have salt to point to the fact that it was, it, it was still incomplete. Uh, it was still lacking because of our sin. Obviously, when Christ died once for all, we have no need to offer sacrifices anymore. And his sacrifice, we could say, didn't require any salt. Salt was used medicinally in the ancient Near East. It was used to fight infection. Uh, it was also used when newborns came in that they would have a, kind of a brine that they would wash them in to purify or to cleanse to prevent uh, infection. Salt was used as a fertilizer. Uh, now, we know too much salt will sterilize the earth, but uh, I've been given the advice to put Epsom salt on palm trees, and it brings the green color back. And again, I see the nodding heads that this is something that you guys have tried as well. So the right amount of salt can actually change the, the, uh, the, the pH in the soil and turn it into a fertilizing agent. Now, Jesus doesn't specify. There were probably other things that we could come up with as well as far as the way salt has been used or is used today. Jesus doesn't mention this. He implies the, the first two, and we'll talk about those more in depth. But we could translate any of these examples of how salt was used into how they are to be reflected in our lives spiritually. Yet I mentioned the first two seem to be primary, both of which are reflected in this question, if the salt has lost its taste. Now, we could say if the salt has lost its taste, if salt became unsalty, it wouldn't be good for any of the things that we mentioned. But, but I want to primarily uh, look at, at taste and, and preservation. As, as for taste, we would understand that our good works are seasoning. They are an enhancement of life to make the world a better place in a manner that would bring glory to God. As believers, we understand that when the world talks about making the world a better place, it is something very different than when we talk about it. Because when we talk about it, it is for the glory of God. So it would include not only conforming to his will, living according to his word, uh, it would also necessarily include proclamation of the gospel. That, that this is a priority of God. So there's, there's components of this that look different from what the world may, be, may mean by the same thing. This also doesn't mean that making the world a better place is our primary objective either. 
Rather, like the metaphor, our saltiness would be used by God to give him glory. So it's not the driving force. It's a, it is a fruit of the Beatitudes, a fruit of the character change. If you think back to the, the early 20th century when the social gospel, so-called social gospel, uh, came into play, it emphasized doing good and being good but neglected the gospel. It slowly over time discarded the gospel. And so if the truth of the gospel is ever lost through the forsaking of the preached law and the preached grace of salvation, our best efforts to make this world a better place are useless. That's what Jesus goes on to say. If we lose our saltiness, if we lose the truth, then the salt has become useless. It's it's good to be trampled under our feet. So the enhancing of flavor in life is for the express purpose of gospel proclamation to give glory to God. There are many other benefits But God in his providence has set that forth in terms of both our salt and our light, that God would be glorified. So in that context, our lives should be oriented to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, which implies faith and obedience in in our relationship to him. So the second thing is preservation. In Romans 1, we read about the degradation of a society when God is not worshipped. It says there, "...for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature," have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Part of our calling as believers is to serve as salt, using it as a preserving agent, to prevent the world from going in the direction that is described here, in part to hinder it. We look around, we see the decay in our own society, in our own day, and most of us at times feel like it's just too far gone. Like there's, what, what, what's the point of, I mean, is there hinder? <laughs> Man, we're, that, hill, that ball is rolling so, so far down the hill, how can we even speak of hindering? Yet the call is for us to season and preserve through being the salt of the earth. Let me say that don't don't make light of small things. None of it, I, I know I say this all the time, but I'll, I'll say it again. Most of us will never have national impact, regional impact, broad impact. You know, most of us are going to do the right thing. We're going to glorify God, die, and be forgotten. That's 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 what most of us are going to do, and that's 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 what we're called to. Some people that are called to give that national platform, steward it well. That's great, but don't despise the small things. I can't remember if it was last week, but recently I said something to the effect: Remember uh, those who we 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 see that have the national platform, the 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 Billy Grahams. You know, some somebody led Billy Graham to Christ. Somebody discipled Billy Graham, and somebody led that person whose name we may not know to Christ and discipled them. And somebody led that person to Christ and raised and discipled them. We are doing the same. We don't know the outcome. We trust God with the results, but don't become so disheartened when you see the world's decay and think, what difference does it make? What good can I do? 
Do well in the small things. Trust God with the results. And remember this hope that we have, that Jesus has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the outcome's already secure. We really don't even have to worry about it. No matter what we see on the TV or hear on the news, the outcome is sure. He will build his church. So, and let me say, especially in our families, but whatever circles of influence the Lord gives us, may our lives be lived with such grace so as to season everything we say and do. Jesus continues using the metaphor with the question of whether salt can be restored if it loses its saltiness. He goes on to say in the second part of verse 13 that it cannot, that it is useless, worthy just to be trampled under people's feet. So the question arises, how do we lose our saltiness? Well, salt as a mineral, and I'll let Frank explain this to anyone uh, who, 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 who wants to understand more because he understands more than I do. But salt, uh, sodium chloride in particular, is very stable. It doesn't become unsalty. Uh, That just doesn't happen. So what was Jesus getting at here? Well, in this time, the means in which they acquired salt was, think of the, the geography. Where would have been the most abundant supply of salt in the land of Palestine? Dead Sea, right? Uh, it, is it, I think it's the saltiest body of water on earth. It's, it's really salty. You can float in it. Uh, it's, it's so buoyant because of the salt content. So the way they would gather the salt was to gather the rocks that surrounded the lake. And those rocks were made of a lot of different minerals. They were porous and they would have over time absorbed the salt. So you could break them up and use them. I guess, I don't know if they threw rocks in the pot to season it or if they were you know, refining it even more, but that was how they were getting it. It wasn't refined like we have it today, like pure salt. And so what would happen is if you used that or if it became exposed over time to a different environment uh, or just time itself, that salt would, would, would come out because of that porous material, would come out of that material so that it would become unsalty. It would be useless be thrown under people's feet, to be trampled, literally gravel. So if, if that, you know, helps us understand, like, you know, once it's, once it's used, you, you use it to, to, to pave your sidewalk or, your, or your, they didn't have driveways, but maybe they had sidewalks. <laughs> anyway, that's how it would be used. In the same way, those who follow Christ have the potential to lose their saltiness and become ineffective and unproductive or unfruitful. That's the language of Peter in his second epistle, chapter 1. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What were the qualities then? Well, we have to go up a little bit. Let me read these to you. Uh, Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And in doing this, in this striving, in this making of every effort, you will not become ineffective or unfruitful. So the way that this happens in our lives is that we neglect our spiritual growth, or a way it can happen. We would probably all agree that spiritual growth or our sanctification is the gracious work of the Spirit of God. 
We cannot, however, deny the exhortations throughout Scripture, as we see here, to strive, to labor, or make every effort, both to resist evil and to do good. The distinction is that sanctification, and we would all probably agree on this, is solely the work of God by His grace. Good works is part of that, but it's the part that we see, that we engage in. Yet we always can look back and realize that it too was the gracious work of God in us. Now, terminology matters. I want to be clear here. We are not to adopt a let go and let God approach in our sanctification, nor are we to turn our good works into something that merits his favor, as if he saved us by his grace and then just turned us over to do the rest on our part to make sure that it it held on, that it stuck. We confess it is his grace alone, yet part of that grace is evidenced in our desire to strive and in the striving itself. It's an evidence of his grace in in us to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue all the way to love. So we work out our faith for it is God who is at work within us. So the way we might lose our saltiness is that we adopt the ways of the world, frog in the kettle. Most people who, who, if they fall in grievous sin and it's exposed, that doesn't just come at like just one day I decided to go out and do this very, very grievous thing. It's over time, they let their guard down, they let the ways of the world creep in, they, they send in what we might think are, are, are more minor ways until they just continued and continued and continued. So we might adopt the ways of the world. We might just become lazy, kind of give up, not care. We might stop taking the kingdom as seriously as we should. Jesus says, we're going to get to this soon enough, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That priority here is to be our priority. The kingdom priorities are to be our priorities. We'll seek to know God through the scriptures. We'll seek to know him through prayer. We'll gather together with his people Every week in worship, we'll be merciful to others as we have been shown mercy. And we will love what God loves and hate what God hates. We could use a number of ways to describe this, but it's in essence the basics. It's the essentials. And what do we often do with them? They, we, we often in our minds, I don't think we do this intentionally, but we often treat the essentials as kind of elementary and when we think of elementary, we think we can stop doing elementary things because we're, we're progressed, we're beyond elementary things. And I know Scripture has uh, some, some language about uh, milk, seek the meat, so forth, that, that kind of thing. But the basics still are important. Think about this. It's true in all of life. In finances, if you neglect the basics, you can get into some pretty complex stuff, but it, it's going to end up being unfruitful. Same is true with our physical health. It's true with our cars. If, if you have the most enhanced car, you know, the best tires, you know, some fancy exhaust system, you get a turbo on it, you know, you got the highest rated air filter. You can do all these things to your car. If you don't change the oil, where will you be? On the side of the road, right? It's, the basics are important. The essentials are essential. So don't neglect them. Read theology. Be aware of cultural trends, listen to podcasts, read blogs, do all that, but don't stop reading your Bible. Pray. Don't just talk to the world. Don't go on social media and become a clanging symbol, but pray and seek time alone with the Lord. Go to church. 
join your church, serve in your church, get to know others in your church. Coming back to the basics is first in maintaining our saltiness. As we do, the Lord will then graciously make use of our lives, our words, and our actions to accomplish His kingdom purposes that others might taste and see that the Lord is good. Moving on to light, we're going to move much farther or faster now. Don't don't worry, uh, because these two correlate to each other. They're 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 in tandem uh, as Jesus preached them, and so the the principles that I've just I've spent more time on that they'll apply here as well. So the metaphor of light, uh, that the outcome of that, let your light shine so that others might see and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That applies to salt as well, and so the principles in salt also apply to light. So the first thing we see is he says, "You are right." Emphatic statement. Uh, not be the light, uh, but you are the light. And then also it's the light for the world or the light of the world. It's others oriented. Now we know that Jesus is called the light of the world in John's gospel. Yet here he tells us that we are the light and the article is there. He doesn't say you are light of the world or you are kind of like light or, you know, he doesn't use that language. He uses the same language as is ascribed to him. Now, we know there's a difference. Jesus is the light, we would say, with a capital, but also, or with the with article, but also with a capital L. Like, you know, he's the light. He's the source of all light. We are reflective of him in the same way that the moon reflects the sun. So Jesus came into the world as the light to reveal the Father, to proclaim the message of the gospel, and to accomplish our redemption. Our light is a reflection of this. We reflect Jesus as the revealer of the Father, as the one who accomplished our redemption. So this act of reflecting isn't optional. He says twice emphatically, you are, you are salt, you are light. And that after those emphatic statements, he moves on with both metaphors to describe our, our obligation, our commitment to walk with intentionality by faith. Now, there are a lot of names that we could use to describe this spiritual growth, discipleship, spiritual formation is one I'm hearing more, uh, good works, acts of mercy, growing in grace, living out the gospel message. We could go on. They're not all exactly the same, but there's overlap and and there's some distinction. But they all involve spiritual growth or discipleship. Those are probably two good terms that we could use. And part of what Jesus is pointing out here is that they're not optional. You cannot find a biblical example where it says... Just believe and then go do whatever you want. Let go and let God. What, I mean, whatever variation of that that you want to plug in here. You're not going to find that in Scripture. This kind of Christianity is in name only. It's lip service. Lip service of faith that has no evidence of faith. It's a counterfeit. True Christianity is by faith, and that faith produces fruit. It doesn't always produce fruit at the rate that we want, not always produce fruit at, in the quality that we want. So, so don't be discouraged uh, by this. Know that that faith will grow. However, if you have doubts about your assurance, maybe I'm not saved because I haven't seen much growth, let me encourage you. There is never as much evidence as we would all prefer. We would, we're like, Lord, why do I keep doing this? You know, why do I, I have to, I keep repenting for the same thing over and over again. Why am I like this? We're always more aware, it seems. I won't say always, but most of the people I talk to, I feel like they're more aware of their faults 
than growth in their lives. I find that I'm often uh, part of what, what I'm given the opportunity to do is point out the evidence I see in their lives because they don't see it. We always wish we had more evidence. But I think seeing our faults more than our growth is actually evidence in itself. It's called humility. I, I might be more concerned of people who talk about their righteousness all the time, who want to point out all of their good works and make sure everybody notices them. If you're doubting, just ask yourself, do I confess Christ? Christ alone for my salvation by faith from sin. And if you do, walk in that confession of faith by faith. Walk in that confession of faith by faith. Now, coming back to the point of growth, Jesus says that it will be evident. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. If you light the light, it's going to be seen. And then he adds in verse 15 that when you do light a lamp, you don't put a bushel or a basket over it. Uh, This basket or bushel was, was most likely the common measuring bowl used in Palestinian kitchens. It could have been a basket in some cases, a bowl in another. But the point is, is that you don't put either over a lamp. And there are more reasons than one. The most obvious reason and the reason implied here is that it it covers the light. But if you put a bowl over a lamp, it will also catch on fire and cause a bigger mess, which is not what Jesus is pointing out. It's just something that I would point out. You don't put a bowl or a basket over light. Instead, we have been redeemed by God for his glory that we might shine like the light, the light that we are, the light that we are called here by Jesus. God did not need us for his own glory, but he chose by his grace to create us and save us for such. In Philippians 2, we read, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Notice that Paul points out the intentionality. We are to shine as lights in the world, lights in the darkness, crooked and twisted generation. Same language that Jesus uses in light and salt, light of the earth, or or light of the world, salt of the earth. We're supposed to be noticed, but not for our own glory, not for our own fame, not for the applause that we might receive. In fact, Jesus is going to speak about that later when it comes to those who pray to be heard or who give to let their coins be, be, be heard by others so that, that uh, people can see just how generous they are. That's for their own fame, their own glory, the applause they might receive. Jesus says that we're to be noticed to give glory to God. He says, as blameless and innocent children. We've all witnessed this. We may have forgotten. We were probably all this way at some point, but, you know, the innocent kids, when they play and dance and sing and feast and do all of that without a care of what other people think of them, dance like no one's watching. Very few adults will do this, but children, they love doing it, blameless and innocent. We grow out of this pretty quickly to the point that we, uh, we start becoming not only aware, but we often become consumed by what other people think of us. We perform and we live out duplicity, which is what the Pharisees were so well known for and Jesus called out for. But instead, we should have our identity so well secured and rooted in Christ Jesus that we can live boldly and courageously without fear of man. And that's going to look different in all of our lives. We're not all the same. We have different personalities. We have different skills and experiences. We also have different spiritual gifts. 
But I can tell you this, it will, when we're living and shining as the light, when we're being the salt of the earth, it will always conform to God's revealed will in Scripture. The result that then comes from this is that others see our light through our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that he uses the term Father to describe God. Uh, he's going to do it 16 times in the Sermon on the Mount, which is which it's it's a long sermon, but still this was this was not a common way of thinking. He uses it 44 total times in his book, and John in his gospel does it even more so. Leon Morris writes, God was sometimes called Father in the Old Testament and by the Jews, but it was not characteristic. It was characteristic for Jesus and for his followers after him. We are so accustomed to referring to God as the Father that we do not stop to reflect that this is a revolutionary way of thinking of the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Jesus altered forever the way we think of God. In conclusion, I want to refer back to two passages that we've already looked at as a reference for what our saltiness and our light should look like. I think both are helpful in reflecting on how we apply this in our lives. In 2 Peter 1, 3 to 8, we read, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, that, that, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. From both of these passages, we can see what our salt and light should look like to the glory of God. Number one, an unending growth in our knowledge of God. The day we stop learning is the day we stop growing and it is the day that we begin being unfruitful. Don't treat... I'm, I'm not talking about knowledge about God. That, that'll automatically be a part of it. I'm talking about knowledge of God. I don't need to use any illustrations here. We all understand this. Our tendency is to learn knowledge about God rather than knowing Him. But that's the emphasis, an unending growth in our knowledge of God, not simply about it. Secondly, a clinging to the promises of God. This is faith, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We want to cling to so many things for our security. We want to find so many things that give us a sense of deliverance or peace. But instead, we see described in both of these passages a clinging to the promises of God is very great and precious promises. Third, a fighting against sin and evil. That is, escaping the corrupt world's influence over our lives. We could say the same thing as we, uh, about this as we do about learning. The day you stop fighting evil is the day that it starts influencing you. This is, I mean, you just can't let your guard down. We're in a battle. Fourth, an effort to grow that we would strive in seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that we, we would see the fruit of His Spirit added unto us. So we're, we're showing effort in our growth. We can look back and see it's all by God's grace, 
but we are putting that effort in. Doing, doing everything fifthly, doing everything without grumbling or complaining. Uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say this may be the most difficult thing for us to actually do. The others we might struggle to understand or see how to... This one, every one of us understands this, and every one of us probably <laughs> finds this difficult. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Because what does this do to the, the message of our, our, our hope in the gospel? It tarnishes it. It, it, it shows it, it, it not to be true in some sense. Sixthly, hold fast to the word of life, that through intentional feeding on the scriptures, we will cling to Jesus, our Savior, who has first taken hold of us and has promised to not let us go. Paul writes in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So because of our sure faith and conviction in Jesus' worth and accomplishments on our behalf, because of the conviction that he has made me his own, we can arise and sing each day of our lives. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, will stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out, shining out to those in darkness. Let's pray.